If you have your Bible with you, would you open it up to uh, the Old Testament book of 1 Kings? And I, some, some of you right now are thinking, hey, what about Romans? That means you didn't get my email a couple days ago. And uh, I, I let people know in advance, if you don't get emails from us, probably we don't have your email address, but be sure and give that to us. We're going to be looking at the book of 1 Kings this morning. Before we do that, um, announcements for those of you that are interested, Katie Harding and Melissa Fortin both had little little babies last night. Katie had a little girl. All right, yeah, pretty cool. And uh, Melissa had a little boy. Now, they, they have four boys now, right? Okay. See, we need to build a building just for all the babies that are being born around here. And that's a good thing. Um, also, big weekend next weekend. You know, Michigan State plays Michigan, right? <laughs> okay, no comment. <laughs> no comment. All right. Uh, big weekend next weekend because um, you might have seen this in your, in your notes. There's a baptism next weekend, and I really, really want to encourage you. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you've never been baptized, really take what he asked us to do seriously because it's not just a, a public act of obedience. It's not just a, hey, here's who I am. I'm a follower of Jesus, which he, he highly regards, right? But it, it's your statement to say, I am free in Jesus Christ, just like we just sang. So if you're interested in that and you want to be part of that next weekend, be sure and contact Gary Post this week at the office, and he'll talk you through the details on that. So why are we going to First Kings? Okay. Over the last number of months, and especially in the last few weeks, I'm finding people incredibly stressed out over the election that's coming up. And, and it, not mattering whether you're Republican or Democrat, people both sides of the aisle are just feeling this sense of anxiety and tension. And, and I know believers in Christ who are not talking to other believers in Christ because of their political persuasions. And, and Jesus prayed that we would be one for a reason, because he knew there would be things that would divide us, right? So we are followers in Jesus Christ first and foremost, right, church? First and foremost, we are followers of Jesus and then we are American citizens. We live in America as followers of Jesus Christ. We have the high privilege of naming him as our savior. And he has specific directives for us as followers of Jesus. Now, individuals who've come over the last number of services this weekend um, came in, especially last night, Saturday night service, I found people are like really nervous, like, I'm so afraid of what you're going to talk about. Are you going to take apart the Democratic platform? Or are you going to take apart the Republican platform? Where are you going on this? And they're just telling me how stressed they are. I just want you to relax right now. We're going to look at God's word and what he has to say to us individually. And that's why I want to take you into 1 Kings 19. As we come into this, I want you to ask yourself this question. Do I believe that God is really at work? Do I believe that God is really at work and that there is more to accomplish in the United States of America? Or have I come to the place where I'm just kind of like given up? Do I believe that God is really at work? The reason I ask you for that, to consider that, is because of where we're going with 1 Kings 19. In 1 Kings 18, Elijah had arrived at Mount Carmel. And he came to Mount Carmel for a specific reason. If you're not familiar with the Bible, I'll just catch you up real quick on this. The nation that had declared that they belonged to God had moved completely away from God. 1 Kings 18 is very, very clear about that. So when Elijah shows up on the scene, he comes to Mount Carmel, and he invites the people to listen to him. 
And he literally declares before thousands of people, as loud as he can yell on the mountainside, if God is God, then serve him. But if Baal is God, then follow after him. Now, Baal is Baal, if you want to pronounce it the correct way. In the Old Testament, he's a god, small g, that the pagans chased after. It was a god of sexual orientation, things that people were very self-interested in. And they had abandoned the one true God and chased after Baal. That was their passion in life. So Elijah shows up on the scene as the lone voice of God saying, make your decision. Are you going to follow God or not follow God? So he kind of throws out the gauntlet. He says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to have two altars. On one altar, I'm going to lay a sacrifice, and on another altar, the prophets of Baal are supposed to lay a sacrifice. And whichever God answers from heaven with fire, that God is the one true God. Uh, If you're familiar with the story, you know that the one true living God answered with fire from heaven. And when he did, fire came down in such a way, it not just consumed the sacrifice, it consumed the water in the trench around it, and it actually incinerated the rocks that were building the altar. As a result of God showing himself powerful on behalf of Elijah, who was loyal to God, Elijah took an action, a very bold action. He told the people that were there to take hold of the prophets of Baal and do away with them. So when you come into 1 Kings 19, you find Elijah hanging out in the capital city because of what just happened on Mount Carmel. And he's waiting and he's watching to see if the king who just witnessed the things on Mount Carmel is going to take action. And if he's going to implement spiritual reforms in the nation based on what he saw happen. So go with me to 1 Kings chapter 19 and verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, you'll see these verses up on the screen. And this is where it begins. Now Ahab, and he's the king, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. He's talking about the prophets of Baal, the ones that had chased after the false god. Jezebel is a queen. And she is of royal blood. She was raised in a palace in another country. King Ahab brought her from another land and had an inter-country marriage. Two different countries coming together. So she is every bit a queen, but she has an incredibly icy heart. And she is utterly ruthless. And she slaughtered God's prophets so that Elijah alone remains. And her personality is so forceful that even King Ahab walks in fear of her. So her reaction in verse 2 is not too surprising. Look with me at verse 2. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me and even more if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. Her focus is really clear. She wants to take Elijah and remove him from the place where he can have any further contact with the king. Because Elijah, as God's spokesman, has just been on Mount Carmel with King Ahab. King Ahab and Elijah have interacted, and he's had influence on Ahab's life. So she promises death within 24 hours, and she has a fierceness that Elijah understands. But here's what she really wants. What she really wants is for Elijah, the man of God, to be discredited before the nation. And how do I know that? Because she very easily could have sent assassins out. She could have sent her soldiers out. But she sent messengers out to say, here's your warning. If she wanted him dead, she could have killed him right then. She sent messengers out to intimidate him in order to discredit him and thereby discredit the God that he serves because she is a woman who understands politics. 
She knows something about leadership. She knows that without strong voices, without individuals who are willing to take a stand, that the activities of God will be diminished. So she has a goal. Her goal is she wants to silence the voice, and the threat is very, very effective to the degree that Elijah runs for his life. So just when God can use him most, he fails. Go with me to the next verse, verse 3. And he was afraid and arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. So he runs without stopping, right? And we're told for, if you read the story further, you'll find for like three to four days, he's hightailing it out of the capital city. And he goes to Beersheba, which is a town that's at the very further southern extreme of the kingdom. But Jezebel can even reach there to the southernmost city. So Elijah dismisses his servant because there's no reason to put his servant's life at risk. He sets him free and his pride is absolutely shattered. So he wants to be alone. So he goes further into the desert, verse 4. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might die and said, It is enough now, O Lord. Take my life, for I am not better than my father's. You ever been at the place where you're completely tapped out? You got nothing left emotionally? Physically, you're exhausted? Elijah crashes because he's physically and emotionally exhausted, he closes his eyes and he prays that they never open again. Just take my life, God. Why? What's, why is he so far gone that he wants to die? Well, his nation has completely turned from God. Are you familiar with the word dispirited? If you ever look up the word dispirited, look up all the synonyms that go with dispirited. You'll find distraught disenfranchised, discouraged, all the D words. That's where he's at. He's completely dispirited. So his answer is this, why even keep me here? It's enough, I'm done. And he's utterly broken. So he throws himself underneath this broom tree, this wide-spreading juniper. And his cry is, I've had all I can take. Have you ever talked like that? Found yourself at the place where like, I'm done. I'm like, man, if she gets elected, I'm moving to Canada. Or, or if he gets elected, I don't know where I'm going. I'm going someplace else, I mean, right? Depend, depending on who your candidate is, who your circle of friends are. People are, are absolutely distraught over the situation. And Elijah finds himself there. I'm completely gone. I know he doesn't really want to die. How do I know that? Because he could have easily gone back to the capital city and Jezebel would have helped him with his request, right? Okay, so he didn't really want to die, but he's just gone emotionally. We think we've maxed out our capacity, but God knows better. God knows what he needs, and what he needs is perspective. He needs to be reoriented The main cause for his failure is the main cause why you and I fail. And I've been right there. I've done it myself. You'll see it in your notes. I put three reasons, and here's what they really are. He not only needs to be reoriented, he truly believes. He absolutely is convinced that he understands everything that's going on. He thinks he sees all the things that are happening. And he's listening to a Jezebel in his life. 
He's got a voice of influence. And that voice of influence, which is contrary to God, is influencing him to respond. And here's the third reason. He does not wait for God's intervention. So track yourself on this. Look at yourself. Do you ever come to the place where you think you know the whole picture, where you've got it all down? Elijah, in number two, he's intimidated by the other voices of influence around him, the ones that are contrary to God. And here's the one that I've messed up on the most in my life, getting ahead of God, acting outside of what God asked me to do. So you find the mighty prophet of God, Elijah, whom Jesus himself quotes, the mighty prophet of God, curled up in a ball under a bush, closing his eyes like, God, just kill me. Go with me to the next verse. Verse 5, he lay down and slept under a juniper tree, and behold, there was an angel touching him. And he said to him, Arise, eat. Then he looked, and behold, there was at his head a bread cake baked on hot stones in a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. I'm convinced as I read this story that he has eaten very, very little on this journey. He's moving at such a pace he hasn't stopped to refresh himself. So his depression may be in part due to his physical weakness. He needs sleep, and he needs a meal. But notice this. Before God deals with the spiritual issues in his life, he's going to deal with them at the physical level. He's going to meet his needs physically before he hits them on the spiritual issues. I want you to be encouraged in this action that you see going on here. You got somebody in your life who's thoroughly discouraged right now? Maybe you're thinking, yeah, me, right? Maybe you know somebody who is thoroughly discouraged. It's one thing to remind them that God cares, but don't ever leave somebody just hanging there. That God cares, be well. Don't just leave them there. Meet the need. Be Jesus to them. Look what God does for him. He opens his eyes, fresh, warm bread. And what's better than a drink of water when you're in the desert? Does God know what he needs? Absolutely. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord came again and second time touched him and said, Arise, eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food. Forty days and forty nights to Horeb. That's another name for Mount Sinai. He went for forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. So he's got this forty-day walk to the same place that God has met other people where God has engaged others and challenged them about who they are. Now, interestingly, if you study geography, you'll find that Beersheba to Mount Sinai, that's only 100 miles. Average human walking 20 miles a day, they could make it there in five days. It takes him 40 days. What's going on? He's wandering. He's wandering because he's distraught. And when he's done wandering, he arrives at the cave, verse 9. And he came there to the cave and lodged there, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? That is a really, really hard question, church. I've had God ask that question. I don't know if you've ever had God whisper that to you. It generally happens when you've gone someplace that you're not supposed to be. And it may be in a whisper in the back of your mind from God speaking through the power of the Holy Spirit to you, convicting you, saying, what are you doing here? I've been in that place where I ran to my cave. If you track Elijah's life, you will find that at every single point in his life, every time when he went to do something, it's because God sent him. God gave him the directives, except 
here, except at this point. God didn't send him there. Elijah left on his own. Running was his idea, not God's, and he left in fear. So God asked the embarrassing question, and the embarrassing question is, what are you doing? What are you doing here, Elijah? And you can tell it's an embarrassing question because he goes into defense mode. He instantly begins to try and explain his reasoning. Go with me to verse 10. He said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. It has been my experience, church, that every time God asks hard questions, they are meant for self-evaluation. It's not because God wants an answer. God doesn't need us to inform him. Oh, thanks, Elijah. I appreciate you telling me that. I had no idea. That is not what's going on here. God's asking him to evaluate himself. Think of Jesus in the garden of the cemetery where his best friend Lazarus is laying behind a rock wall inside a tomb. And Martha's grieving and Mary's grieving. And Jesus comes on the scene and says, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me will never die. Martha, do you believe this? See, that's God asking a self-evaluation question. Moses shows up and begins in a conversation with God. And he begins arguing with God when God says, Moses, you're going to be my spokesman before Pharaoh. And Moses argues back. And God says to Moses, who formed man's mouth, Moses? Job begins challenging God as to whether or not the things that he's going through in life should really be happening to him. And God says to Job, where were you when I formed the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know, for you are so wise. See, that's God asking for self-evaluation. Does Elijah not understand the depth of his failure? He reveals the depth of his discouragement because he believes, he's convinced, he is all alone in this. So from God's opening question, Elijah is dismissing his nation as being utterly beyond the reach of God, utterly beyond hope. So instead of confessing his own issues, he begins arguing his case, and Elijah waits for God to give him a comment back. And there's no comment. The emptiness between verse 10 and verse 11 is profound. Elijah has traveled for 50 days on foot to get to the place where he can hear from God. No, I'm stop. Where he can tell God. You ever been in the place where you want to tell God? I'm all alone here. I'm the only one that sees things the way they're supposed to be. Don't you know what's going on? Can't you do something about this? He's there to tell God, and he's made his case, and then nothing. I, I don't have a good cricket sound. I'd make cricket sound if I could. Crickets. Have you had God be silent in your life? Maybe it's because you're in telling God mode as opposed to listening for the gentleness of his voice. Maybe it's because the complaint is louder than the voice speaking back. Go with me to the next verse, verse 11. So he said, go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by. See, God made no comment about Elijah's complaint. 
So he said, go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And the Lord was passing by, and a great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of gentle blowing. So as as soon as Elijah steps from the shelter, he's met with this awesome power. The twister is just ripping rocks from the mountain. They're going crashing down to the valley floor below. And then the earth begins to shake. And then fire, the Hebrew text says, it's as though there's a fire in the sky blazing and lighting up the night sky. Elijah sees this lightning flashing all around him. And if you're like Elijah and you're like me and you're thinking, yeah, bring it, God. This has got to be God's presence. See, he's just come from Mount Carmel, right? He saw God bring fire from heaven and consume the altar. Surely, this is God's presence. But the Bible says, but God was not in the fire. God was not in this. Why the earth, wind, and fire then? Focus on what the Bible says is there. Focus on the still, small voice. The Hebrew language calls it the gentle voice of absolute stillness. A faint whisper, Elijah. Be reminded, church, God is not only seen in the gigantic. My experience is that many, many, many times he is more often found in the stillness. Mount Carmel is wonderful. The blaze of God is amazing, but lasting spiritual work is often, most often accomplished by God working quietly, stilly, behind the scenes. Do you notice the tender, loving mercy of your God in this story? You need to see what's not there. What is not there is there is no rebuke. There's no reproach. He doesn't bring to Elijah Elijah, you were so reckless. I can't believe you ran away. What is this that you're asking for death? God could scold Elijah like that, couldn't he? But it's not there. Instead of rebuke, find me, Elijah. Find me in the stillness. See, I I need to be reminded, and I bet you do this morning, while our God is a God of judgment, he is also a God of mercy and grace. Somebody say amen to that. Our God is as gracious as he is a God of judgment. He's not any less than one in the other position. And he is this gentle voice calling out, Elijah, what are you doing? So go to the next verse because you find Elijah timidly making his way out with a cloak over his face. Verse 13, when Elijah heard it, When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Focus on verse 13. Elijah heard it. No doubt he heard the earthquake, the rocks crashing to the floor. No doubt the thunder was loud. No doubt the powerful wind caught his attention. We're told Elijah heard it. Heard what? The still, gentle whisper. Elijah, what are you doing here? The same God, hear this again. 
the same God who can bring judgment is also my God who says, I am stillness, I am gentle, I am mercy, and I am dealing with you, Elijah. What are you doing here? I'm talking to you specifically, Elijah. Elijah needs this church, and I need this. You need this. We are living in a world that is far from God. And I'm not just talking about the United States. I'm talking globally. We live in a world that is far from God, and our human emotion naturally wants to go in gear, like we've been talking about in the book of Romans over the last weeks about way that God brings judgment and that he's qualified to bring judgment. But what we're seeing here is even though we live in a world that is far from God and our temptation is to say, God, judge them. To drive the point home, God raises the same embarrassing question. What about you, Elijah? What are you doing here? Watch his answer. Go with me to the next verse 14. Then he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God, the God of hosts. For the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Perhaps you didn't hear me the first time, God. Right? I want to say it louder, and I'm going to say it faster. The nation that I live in has rejected you, and I'm the only faithful one. Much of what he says is true. Persecution is rampant. And I understand why there is despair. I get that. You get that. But his perspective is poor. Here's what I see going on in Elijah's life. Check yourself on this church. Elijah clearly doubts. I think he's even lost hope that God could ever turn his nation back. I think he's hit the wall where he believes it's impossible. I was your best shot, God. I'm Elijah. I'm the best you've got, and it didn't work. I'm all alone in this, in my neighborhood, in my family, in my workplace, on the board of directors. I'm alone. Nobody is tracking after you. I'm all alone. There is great danger in self-vindication, and I know because I've been there. This is what it sounds like. I've got my act together, too bad they don't, right? You ever find yourself thinking that way? I've got my act together, too bad they don't. That's why you find God probing. Why are you here, Elijah? Because Elijah only sees his own qualities, right? He only sees the great things in himself and the sins of others. He absolutely resents the corruption of the age, and I get it. I'm afraid to even open up my iPad or, or my phone in the morning and look at the news headlines, right? It, it, it's almost like you don't want to click on the news channels. Like, oh man, what happened last night? What, what's gone down this time? That you hit that place where you resent the corruption of your age and it causes you to run a recoil. I get that. Is it not incredibly strange to you? Do you not find it suspicious at all? that Elijah doesn't suspect his own incapacity. He's the one hiding in the cave, right? 
He's the one that ran away. So when the question is repeated, he returns with the exact same answer. That reminds me of something really clear because I've done it. Even the best of us, and Elijah is the best of us, even the best of us are willing to look with a degree of haughtiness on our own qualities. We're really good about going into camouflage mode, some degree of partiality. So it sounds like this. I may have issues, but at least I'm not like that. Right? Okay? Tracking with me? I, I may have some things I'm dealing with in my life, but not that way. I, I find that's why gossip is so widely listened to. Because we really like to hear the dirt on other people. If you take nothing else with you today, hear this. This is what most people gave me pushback on and feedback on that nailed them over the last two services. For true, legitimate revival to begin in your nation, it begins with me. For true, legitimate revival to begin, it begins with you. It starts with us. It's birthed in prayer. It's birthed on our knees. God, search me, know me, see if there's any wicked way in me. That's King David's prayer. God, let it begin with me. Watch how God responds to Elijah's complaints. Verse 15. The Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you have arrived, you shall anoint Hazael king over Aram. If you're not familiar with Aram, that's Syria. Modern day Syria that you're watching get blown up every night on the news. That's Aram. And Jehu, Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. Before I take that verse apart, Hear this, how gracious is our God. How gracious that he says to Elijah, Elijah, you got off track, man. Go back. Go back, you're off track. Return on your way, verse 15. Get back in there. The vacation is over. Let's see, he ran four, five days from Jezebel to get to Beersheba. 40 days into the wilderness, a day he's hanging out underneath the juniper tree, so we got 45, 46 days. Do you think in 46 days his nation has changed? In 46 days, same nation, 46 days, the same problems, 46 days, and the Jezebels of this world are still out there. And check this, God's not freaking out. God doesn't freak out. He says, Elijah, you got work to do, man. You got off track. Go back, return on your way. And I want you to pay special attention to what he asked Elijah to do. Anoint the king of Syria. Anoint the king of Israel. Anoint Elisha to take your place. What is that telling you? International affairs. God is putting a new king in place over a pagan nation. Gary and I were talking about this between services. Meaning, remind yourself that even if your guy or your gal does not get elected, and even if they're not godly, can God still work through them? 
The political structure you're seeing here are international politics. The king of Syria, which God says, I'm going to put a new king in place. In his own nation, he's reestablishing God's rule over the nation. And then he says, there's an Elisha in your world, Elijah. There's, there's a spiritual person coming after you who's going to pick up the mantle and take it over when you can't do it any longer. Why? Ask yourself, why is he telling him to do this? Because there is a future. Because there is a future, and the future needs godly voices. And so God's putting the people in place because Scripture says God raises them up and God puts them down. God raises up rulers and God puts down rulers. Verse 17 finishes the story. It shall come about that the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael, Jehu shall put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha shall put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. If you happen to have the New International Version of the Bible, your translation is a little more accurate than the New American Standard you see on the screen. The next verse that you see up there, that's the NIV. It says, I have reserved. That's that Hebrew word you see in your notes this morning, shahar. God has caused to swell up a remnant. 7,000 Elijahs. Individuals who will go out and do what Elijah's been doing. God's saying, I'm going to be using my voices in this nation. I've been holding them in protective reserve. How does he identify them? Because these are the ones who have kept my ways. Even when culture has gone the opposite direction, God says, I've got 7,000. In other words, I'm in control, Elijah. In other words, Elijah, I have things going on that you haven't even begun to imagine. That means Mark Kring doesn't know everything that God's working on. And don't look too proud at me because you don't either, right? (laughs) We think we do. We think we see the complete picture. God says, I've got things going on you haven't even begun to imagine. If you're a student here, high school, college, I'll just step it up. Let's go to 35. If you're 35 and under, you getting tired of all the election conversation? I see by the nods of the head you are and smiles, right? I'm not going to isolate you out if you're over 35. I know you're getting tired of it. I understand that. You're getting tired of all the debate, all the rancor, the, the fighting, the division. Hear this. God has plans for the future. God has plans. And so you see him, even when Elijah thinks it's over, God's saying, it's not over till I say it's over. I'm not done yet, Elijah, just because you think you know everything that's going on. So if you are a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, hear this. This is where the exercise of faith kicks in. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have to check yourself right in this moment. It's in these moments you have to ask yourself, do I really believe that God works all things together for good? Even when I can't see it? Even when I can't understand it? Even when I can't make sense of it? God works all things together for good. Even when it looks like it's a mess. So ask yourself what you asked yourself in the beginning when we started. Do I believe that God has more to accomplish in the United States of America? 
Do I believe that God is done or does he have more going on? And I want you, if you came in here with stress this morning, if you came in here with tension, it's okay. Elijah was right there with you. Elijah was absolutely stressing out. He thought it was over. So consider yourself in good company, okay? You're thinking like Elijah, right? You're in good company. He's human, just like we are. It is okay, church, to go to the cave. It is okay to go to some place where you need to get refreshed, to lick your wounds. You study the life of Jesus, and you're going to find that he went to the mountains. Early in the mornings, they found him in quiet places away from the crowd. I especially love it when he went to the lake shore because, like, I'm with that, right? I, the problem with the lake shore is, though, you want to stay, right? So if you're thinking, like, you're going to move to Canada the day after the election and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, check yourself. God might be saying, wait, did I send you there? Because I can use you right where you're at. It is so tempting to want to stay at the lakeshore, but God's direction is engage. Return on your way. Even when culture turns, God, I mean, like they're killing everybody. Yep. Even then, Elijah, especially then. Because when culture keeps rejecting God, you know what it's evidence of? It's, it's evidence for us to remember the most important thing. We live in a world that desperately needs Jesus Christ. We do. So when you see things going the way that you think they shouldn't be going, are you praying in response to that? Like, God, that person needs Jesus. Be praying for the leaders that he puts in place in this nation. We need godly leaders. But if they're in office and they're not godly, be praying that they would become godly. Can you imagine what could happen to this nation if God had godly leaders? God says, I've reserved voices for myself you don't even know about, Elijah. Just let me work out my plan. We live in a world that desperately needs Jesus Christ. Amen. With that thought in mind, I don't know what this has done for you this morning. Uh, maybe it's a punch in the gut or maybe it was encouraging. I, I hope it was both. Um, I, I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to pray for us. Would you join me in that? Father, many of us, it, it just um, large numbers of people have filled this auditorium over the course of the weekend and I felt the presence of your Holy Spirit speaking. And maybe in ways that we didn't anticipate that you were going to speak. I pray for each and every individual here. Man, woman, child. God, that we would be a people who would respond to what we see you calling us to individually. Where you push on our lives. Let it begin with us. God, I ask that on behalf of our church, that we would be a people who would respond, and God, our response can change the world. We see what you did with just 12 disciples, that we would be so sold out to you that the world has to take notice. 
Put your blessing upon New Hope in such a way that everyone will know that we are a people who stand for the living God. Regardless of what happens in society, Father, I pray your hand on these people who have willingly taken this time to be here today. Use them this afternoon and tomorrow and the next day. Use us as a force for your kingdom. We pray for this in Jesus' mighty name in whom we have freedom. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Have a great week, New Hope.